Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. So I'm here to continue our discussion with Dr. Celeste Wallander on Russia, foreign relations, and military. Uh, and just a quick recap, Dr. Wallander is the president of the U.S. Russian Foundation and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia from 2009 to 2012. She also served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Russia and Eurasia on the National Security Council from 2013 to 2017. So Dr. Wallander, I guess the logic that you just previously presented uh, in our past discussion was that the future of geopolitics in Eurasia, Russia, U.S., it really depends on Russia's economic performance. But because its current core's um, internal policy, government corruption, U.S. sanctions, it's really keeping Russia behind, which I guess in a way might prevent Russia from further aggression. We talked about microaggression. We talked about this idea of salami tactics where uh, Russia gradually having these microaggressions to Ukraine that gradually establishes norm that the international community sort of recognizes and doesn't do anything anymore. Um, so the, the, another question I have right now is, are we seeing, after President Trump got elected, are we seeing a long-term strategic shift in the sense that U.S. and Russia's relation will become better? So many people are calling uh, for normalization of Russian relationship with Russia after the Mueller report got released and cleared Trump. Um, so, and, and we're seeing a worsening relation between China and the U.S. So is there a strategic shift from the U.S. to focus more energy on China in the long term and become better, rela- better friends with Russia? Do you think that's happening and whether this sort of shift will give Russia a little bit more breathing room and eventually help Russia reach that transformation that we previously talked about on the episode? Well, it's certainly the case that American-Chinese relations have become uh, more complicated and less positive. Uh, I don't know that that is the Trump administration per se. I think that these are fundamental strategic shifts, and especially that um, China, it's not just China's growing power, but it's that China is a growing power, that it's using its power for revisionism. I think the the strategy of U.S. policy through several administrations was to recognize China was a rising power and to seek to uh, integrate Russia, uh, China into the international system as a positive stakeholder and a constructive stakeholder. So it's not the rise of Chinese power per se that was the challenge. It was what China would use that power for. And I think the view now is that China is using that power Um, for revisionist goals and goals that uh, negatively affect U.S. national security. So that is true. I I think that's still an open story about how that relationship will be managed. But but you're right that U.S.-Chinese relations have taken a negative turn. But that doesn't mean that U.S.-Russia relations are going to take a positive turn, because many of the same reasons why U.S.-Russia-U.S.-China relations have taken a negative turn are are present in uh, Russia's challenge to American national interests. These revisionist elements, uh, or more than elements, these revisionist drivers of Russian national security. 
So uh, the assumption that a lot of people seem to have that because U.S.-Chinese relations have become more complicated and more negative, that this will lead to a more positive U.S.-Russia relationship, I, I don't understand that. Um, that there, it, it could be, but it's not foreordained and it's not inherently logical. Um, the challenges that, ch that Russia poses to U.S. national interests in Europe are significant and can't simply be swept under the rug or ignored simply because uh, we have a difficult relationship with China. And even more fundamentally, um, Russia is, has been a direct challenge to American national interests by interfering in our elections, uh, by, you know, through all the means, whether those were um, social media efforts to affect the information America, available to American voters, to try to infuse money into the American political process, um, you know, a whole host of ways that it's not merely a theoretical matter of the United States sort of defending our European allies. It's about the United States defending ourselves against Russian revisionism. And so I don't see how that can be put aside in a little box for some abstract idea that better U.S.-Russia relations would help us cope with a challenging China. I think that right. is really right. facile and simplistic, and I just don't understand when people make that argument. That totally makes sense. But, but And you don't think that the current response, however we respond to Russia, it's not just determined by... Trump or his vision, but but rather that it's our country as a whole. There's this sort of strategic consensus against revisionism, against this sort of aggression. So this is something I have been telling Russians since early 2017, when they were all excited and happy about right, the outcome of the elections, <laughs> and this is going to change everything. And I would say, wait, wait, hold on, guys, time out. You know, in, a, in an authoritarian regime or, or some kind of regime in which the leadership is not subject to checks and balances and executes the policy that is in the interest of the regime, not the national interest, yeah, that can happen. You can get a foreign policy that can turn on a dime and advance the ideas of you know, a, a leader who is not accountable or not subject to checks and balances. The United States is still a democracy. <laughs> it's still a constitutional democracy. Um, the president of the United States is still subject to the Constitution, still has to follow the rule of law, right. still is subject to congressional appropriations uh, and uh, legislation, and is still constrained by the American voter, public opinion, and in general, you know, our country, and has to serve the national interest. And early in 2017, I warned a lot of Russians. I said, just wait. It's not going to be that uh, simple for uh, what you think to be this epic turn uh, in uh, U.S. policy. And I think, uh, I think I've been Oh, well, I'm not the only one who thought this. Anyone who understood American politics and American democracy you know, knew that this was going to be the case, and that's exactly what we've seen. But do you think that often the West in general, including Europe and, and the U.S., sometimes struggle to respond to nationalism, populism, or revisionism, or um, authoritarian regimes because there are a lot of internal pro problems within the West as well? For example, people could say, oh... Look at the U.S. There's a lot of chaos, chaos regarding elections or, or 
campaigning. There's a lot of corruption as well. And people say, oh, look at Europe. The economy isn't doing as well. So do you think the, the West is really struggling in that sense to effectively respond to the revisionist vision presented by a lot of countries? Well, I think there, I, I want to unpack what you said. I think that that's right, that um, internally, um, countries in Europe and certainly the United States are, are facing contestation, have different interest groups, uh, have uh, functional and dysfunctional elements in their politics. Those are the messy politics and, and messy societal and economic realities of countries that are pluralistic and diverse. Um, and not authoritarian. It's you know the it's the messiness of democracy that uh, makes us strong, but it also can make us weak uh, in periods of incredible change and uh, disagreement within our countries. And so yes, we are facing significant foreign policy and and international challenges at a time when we're facing a lot of disagreement uh, and uh, instability internally. Um, that just comes with the territory. It's not the first time that this kind of challenge has faced the United States. In the 1920s and 1930s, the same elements were in place in terms of economic decline, political uh, polarization, uh, sort of a sense of it's not clear how you go forward, a reversion to isolationism, uh, and a failure to um, be effective on the international stage, which ultimately uh, resulted in the rise of fascism in Europe and World War II. So yes, we should take this very seriously, but it doesn't mean the United States, and, and I'm not saying you were arguing this, uh, but I think some people need to understand that doesn't mean that therefore we need to get rid of uh, the strengths of democracy, which is that our leaders are held accountable, that we do have debate. Um, because I've seen the obverse. I've seen what happens to a country in which citizens can't question their leadership. Um, that was the Soviet Union. And look what happened to the Soviet Union. It ultimately fell apart exactly because the leadership could never be challenged, because it continued to advance an economic model that was a failure from the get-go. Um, so people who think that you know the alternative might be better should should uh, pay attention to um, how authoritarian regimes fail, including the failures of of Nazi Germany. Um, so I will still continue to put my bet that the messiness of democracy and pluralism and diversity uh, will win out in the end, even if it kind of looks ugly in the meantime. Got you. Um, and just follow this trend of thought about. Uh, democracy and liberalism, do you think in a way that the Western liberalism model as it's being challenged will kind of eventually in the next couple of decades take on different form? It would change it up a little bit. And and do you have any future prediction or any... I, I know this is some very grand concepts like political ideology or globalization, but just, just given how the world is right now, sort of where do you see our world shape up in, in the next couple of decades? So I think what societies in not just the United States and Europe, but globally are facing is that globalization is a, is a, can be a force for positive change by facilitating growth, um, facilitating new ideas and exchange. But like most human phenomena, 
it also brings negatives. And there was a failure in the last, uh, you know, 30 to 40 years to take seriously the responsibility of societies and governments to craft policies and institutions to enhance and uh, magnify the positive effects, but mitigate the negative effects. There were a lot of, I remember, I went to college in the, in the early 80s, and there were a lot of discussions about how you were going to have to match openness uh, to international trade and to flows of information with retraining programs for, you know, uh, for workers who were going to need to be have new skills to be able to take advantage of rapidly changing economies, and our societies mostly failed to do that. So I don't, I'm not hopeless that um, a the model of liberalism cannot adapt. But I think that anyone who believes in the promise of liberalism, of pluralism, of competition, and free ideas has to recognize that simply because it could have been. Um, therefore it will be, uh, is a failed, is a failed in, uh, responsibility, and that the solution to the rise of populism and nationalism and the extraordinarily negative effects of economic dislocation on so many in America and also in Europe and, and also in, in Asia, in many countries, we have to take that seriously, and the next generation of political leaders is going to have to step up, just as the political generation during the Great Depression um, stepped up and found ways to create institutions and policies to mitigate and uh, advance from the very negative effects of the early 20th century globalization, which resulted in the Great Depression. So I think we can do it, but I, I don't think we have done it. And so I think the jury is still out. And the United States is having this political debate, and this political debate is going on in Europe um, and I'm sure it's going on in Asia. I'm less less familiar with uh, Asian politics uh, politics in countries in Asia, um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, rule it out. And I would actually uh, you know say that it's your generation, Tiger, that needs to to take right. this up because you're the generation that will help to figure us out figure out how to do this. Totally makes sense. And and I guess that was a sort of a discussion on the cultural and political ideological impact, but. Based on your work experience as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and also as a National Security Advisor, how do you see the military playing a role here? And by that, I mean, do you think countries will be in a new arms race soon? Because we're seeing, uh, for example, the Trump administration just built this new Space Force thing, which a lot of people think is about advancing the technology and really having an edge over the enemies in the future. And... Um, how do you envision the future of, of the military, the defense industry? So military technology is, um, uh, some, this may be controversial and not everyone will like if I say this, but military technology is, again, it's a, it's a human construct, and therefore construct. it can be positive or negative depending on how humans treat it. So military technology can protect us and defend us, uh, and stabilize societies and the conditions for international trade, or it can be used for aggressive and destructive purposes. And so technology is not inherently negative, I think. I mean, there are some technologies that are more dangerous than others, but I think the onus is, again, on political leadership and institutions to develop 
capabilities that uh, advance stability and security, but are not used for aggression and instability. And so technologies, and you, you kind of can't stop technology, but what you can do is shape how it's used, how it's developed, and how it's deployed. And for example, there were nuclear, there were ideas about how to develop nuclear weapons that were extremely dangerous and destabilizing that the United States and Soviet Union agreed during the Cold War, even the height of the Cold War, to not pursue because they were so clearly destabilizing. And uh, both sides agreed to, to not pursue them in order to not make the world more dangerous. And I think that, again, we have to have a next generation discussion about what kinds of space-based technology could help uh, by providing warning, uh, by you know, uh, providing security for commercial satellites, uh, reducing the incentive for preemption, but what kinds of technologies or deployments would actually be dangerous? And so there isn't a simple answer to that. I don't think it's an inherent issue, but it is certainly a manageable issue. And again, we have evidence from past periods in which, Amer in which Americans and Soviets or Europeans developed very dangerous technologies that they stepped away from. But it doesn't come naturally. You have to work at it. So technology could make a difference here, but what matters even more is how the people, how the policymakers, the generals, the, the technocrats, the bureaucrats, how they think about those issues and um, really make a sensible and moral decision here. I, I guess that's um, the point here. I, that's right, but I would extend it even further. It's not just the leadership, it's citizens. Right. Leaders, leaders are going to be responsive to the demands of their citizens, at least in a democracy. And so citizens need to educate themselves. They need to think about uh, what is in their interests, because that's the only way that political leaderships do what is in the interests of the country, as right. opposed to their own narrow elite interests. Got you. And, and I, I know we're on a short time frame, so um, I want to just uh, go a little bit deeper on, I guess, your personal experiences before we end the interview, because you've had such a fascinating range of work experiences. You've been a professor uh, at Harvard, Georgetown, American University, an advisor to President Obama. You worked in the Defense Department, obviously, and uh, and also all sorts of th think tanks. So. I, I wanted to, just out of personal curiosity, I guess what kind of connection do you see between all those capacities that, that you've had, and especially in the context how uh, I guess it seems quite common that policymakers in the U.S. would often make transitions between the public and private and the academia sectors. Um, I really wanted to hear your thoughts on, on uh, your experience. So I would say the most important uh, thing linking all the different uh, work experiences I've been lucky to have is the importance of being able to uh, analyze um, a situation, understand its kind of components, and figure out what the challenge is or the opportunity is, and then develop uh, a, a view on how to achieve either the opportunity or address the challenge. Um, as a professor and as a, as a scholar who wrote about Soviet military, Soviet defense, and international security, um, you're looking at trying to explain uh, outcomes or events in, in the international system that have multiple causes. 
So what leads to war, for example, or what causes crises to escalate to war, or when are arms races, uh, when do they escalate and become destructive, or when are they successfully negotiated and mitigated? All, all those things were the kinds of things I studied uh, when I was a graduate student and when I then became a professor. And then as a professor, I had to not only study those things, I had to explain them to my students. I had to help them figure out how to tackle a problem, how to break down an explanation in its component parts, test an argument about what was important, what led to the outcome, which variables, you know, is it, is it the rise of national power, as I suggested we're facing with China, or is it the purposes to which that power is used that leads to conflict and war, as I suggested, might be as important. So all of those things that I learned in the more academic world became incredibly useful and important in the policy world. Because in the policy world, you're not going to talk about theories and variables, but you are going to talk about how do we, how do we know what to predict Russia will do next. And that's about breaking down that question into its component parts. Is it what drives the leadership, perhaps? Is it what drives national interests, perhaps? Does Russia have the military capabilities necessary to achieve its objectives? What are the economic interests it might have, say, in Ukraine? And so actually the process gets done with different terms and different words. You don't talk about theories and variables, but trying to figure out in the real world, in a real moment, uh, what's going on uh, is actually very similar in the policy world. And that makes me excited about thinking about the work in universities. A lot of times people kind of dismiss universities and say, ah, you know, ivory towers. Universities that are doing their jobs are actually preparing the next generation of leaders and policymakers to exactly do what they need to be able to do when they have uh, that kind of responsibility. The biggest difference, I will say, is in a university, you have lots of time to figure it out. Right. <laughs> if you don't, if you can't figure out what you think caused World War One in one book, you can write another book someday. <laughs> in government, you've got about five minutes to explain to the president of the United States what you think's going on and what we should do about it. And so, not everyone um, is comfortable with that kind of approach to give it, give the best answer you've got. Um, but that is the crucial difference, I think, between being in a university context where you have plenty of time to think about it and argue about it and then revisit it as opposed to being in government where you, you really have to give it your best shot. So you better be really well prepared right. um, when you go into government. But but do you think America today is is generating good policy ideas and discussions constantly? Because or, or I guess what what can America do to to improve? But also in the context of just um, world politics and policy making, what does it usually take for a country's environment to to generate good policy discussions and ideas? No, you've hit on something that I actually, you've pointed to something that I am concerned about, and your question suggests you are concerned about it too, <laughs> which is especially on Russia, especially on Russia now, everything is so politicized, right. um, you know, that to say anything sensible or neutral, to try and be analytical as a Russia expert these days in our current political context is incredibly difficult. And I, I think that right now it is very, very difficult to have sensible, fact-based, 
um, neutral, analytical, intelligent conversations about what Russia is, what its uh, you know policies are, what its future may be. And I do worry about that because in speaking back to something I suggested, the people who come into government, you don't have a lot of time to develop new knowledge and new ideas for the reasons I suggested. So you kind of, you bring what you already have, your experience, your knowledge, hopefully your thoughtfulness and your education with you. And if in the current environment, people can't really invest in that thoughtfulness and that analytical sharpness and that openness to facts, and fact-based analysis, I do worry that it is going to be a challenge to have a sensible Russia policy uh, going forward. I hope our political environment calms down soon, uh, that we get some resolution on many of the questions that are really churning up our political debates about Russia, and that we can return to a place where people who might disagree about Russia uh, can nonetheless talk about it sensibly, but I, I think there is a danger that we've lost uh, ground in the ability to be sensible and talk about Russia. Got you. And and I guess that would be the same in a country like Russia, right? Because Russian policymakers might have a tough time to, to come up with sensible, non-politicized um, sentiments against the U.S. or other, other parts of the world as well, right? They, they would say things that are more suitable to to the political environment. I think that's right. And I've noticed over not just the last couple of years, but certainly the last two decades, that it, there is a dearth of America experts in Russia who really understand American politics. And the fact that so many people in the Russian elite thought that, you know, American sanctions were going to be lifted, you know, the day after Donald Trump was uh, inaugurated president of the United States just shows you how little they understood American gotcha. politics and the reality of the United States. Gotcha. The fact that they have been so surprised again and again and again that, in fact, uh, American defense strategy and American defense policy is pretty tough, and actually there's a lot of continuity between Obama administration policy on Russia and uh, the current administration policy on Russia. That may not be the choice of the White House, uh, but the, it is the it is the choice and the commitment of the broader American public and and the broader uh, society. And so that to me is an indication, and I see it all the time, that there has been an erosion of uh, people who really understand America and the United States and Russia because those voices are not welcome because they go against the grain of you know what the what the political elite, elite in Russia, uh, in the Kremlin, uh, believes about an America that is um, both out to get them and just like them. And, and I do worry that they might miscalculate because they've lost that capability as well. Got you. And, and I guess, lastly, what advice would you give to either young people in my generation or policymakers um, like your colleagues when we try to understand another country like Russia, because you obviously are very, very successful in understanding Russia and probably um, in a more globalized world today in the future, it would take more from my generation to really understand not just a diverse range of topics, but also diverse range of cultures. And how do we achieve that? How do we better empathize and interact and respond to other countries? Well, there's a million different answers depending <laughs> on what people want to do. But, um, you know, some people – the other thing I, I didn't mention, I'll answer it this way, that I didn't mention that is different about the policy world and government versus the university is that 
the importance of teamwork. And no one can do anything on their own. You need a team of people who have who bring their expertise and their experience and their knowledge uh, in different areas to a challenge, because no challenge is one-dimensional. You can't deal with Russia by only knowing about Russia. I could not have done my job uh, when I served in, in the Obama White House without people who are incredible experts on, for example, the cyber world, or on counterintelligence, or on trade and economic issues. And so I think that um, my advice to to your generation and to you and, he, and your and your friends and colleagues and fellow students is follow what you really care about, become an expert in what you really care about, but also stick with those core competencies and understanding a problem, understanding how to break down a problem, and listening to others who have expertise and knowledge that you may not have, and be open to working with them to fashion uh, answers, understandings and answers that are bigger than any one piece of the issue. And if you bring both your own expertise and your own experience and your own analytical sharpness to a team effort where you appreciate that, in fact, you don't know everything, but that's okay because if you have the right team among you, all of you will know everything you need to know. That's the thing I think that I learned through experience that I wish I'd known back when I was uh, getting ready to graduate from college myself. That sounds wonderful. And, and just finally, since the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, I really got to ask you, what's the policy punchline here for, for Russia, for geopolitics, for diplomacy, for anything we've talked about in today's interview? <laughs> I think the policy punchline, if you'll forgive me, is <laughs> yes, we can. Gotcha. Um, and yes, we still can. And we shouldn't give up. Russia is not an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a puzzle. Uh, it is knowable, it is manageable, and Americans need to have confidence in their ability to do that. And I think we can get on a better track, and I hope Russia will itself get back on a better track, too. And in the meantime, also uh, not lose faith in our interaction with them, just like the work you're doing in the U.S.-Russian Foundation. I really don't want Americans to think Russians are everything they see on TV. Russian, average Russians are funny and uh, committed and uh, among the best friends you could have. And so to get past the headlines, to get past official relations uh, and understand there's a great, wonderful country out there full of wonderful people. And hopefully if we invest in those people-to-people -people relationships and student exchanges, uh, we can get back to the hope we had at the end of the Cold War for a better relationship between the United States and Russia. That's a wonderful message for us to have. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wallander. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or iTunes podcast, or visit us on jrc.princeton.edu or policypunchline.com. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. 
policy punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening. Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. So I'm here to continue our discussion with Dr. Celeste Wallander on Russia, foreign relations, and military. Uh, and just a quick recap, Dr. Wallander is the president of the U.S. Russian Foundation and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia from 2009 to 2012. She also served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Russia and Eurasia on the National Security Council from 2013 to 2017. So Dr. Wallander, I guess the logic that you just previously presented uh, in our past discussion was that the future of geopolitics in Eurasia, Russia, U.S., it really depends on Russia's economic performance. But because its current cores, um, internal policy, government corruption, U.S. sanctions, it's really keeping Russia behind, which I guess in a way might prevent Russia from further aggression. We talked about microaggression. We talked about this idea of salami tactic where uh, Russia gradually having these microaggressions to Ukraine that gradually establishes norms that the international community sort of recognizes and doesn't do anything anymore. Um, so the, the another question I have right now is, are we seeing, after President Trump got elected, are we seeing a long-term strategic shift in the sense that U.S. and Russia's relations will become better? So many people are calling um, for normalization of Russian relationship with Russia after the Mueller report got released and cleared Trump. Um, so, and, and we're seeing a worsening relations between China and the U.S. So is there a strategic shift from the U.S. to focus more energy on China in the long term and become better, better friends with Russia? Do you think that's happening? And whether this sort of shift will give Russia a little bit more breathing room and eventually help Russia reach that transformation that we previously talked about on the episode. 